So on behalf of the, whoops, on behalf of the Shorenstein Center, I'd like to welcome you to the Goldsmith Awards, the highlight of our year. I'm Tom Patterson, the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press, and the Shorenstein Center's Interim Director. Uh, and I'd like to reiterate, uh, please join, join us tonight in tweeting the event. Our handle is at ShorensteinCTR, and as was mentioned, our hashtag tonight is Goldsmith Awards. The Goldsmith Awards were made possible by Robert Greenfield, a Philadelphia lawyer and graduate of Harvard Law. Bob had a client named Berta Marks Goldsmith who decided to bequeath him her entire estate. Bob said, please don't. She did it anyway. So Bob set out to find a way to honor her memory. As it happens, Mrs. Goldsmith was passionate about news and honest government, and it just so happened that Bob struck up a conversation with a complete stranger. It was Gary Oren, a member of our faculty. That random encounter led Bob to Marvin Kelb, the Shorenstein Center's founding director. And out of their meeting came the idea for the Goldsmith Awards. We've been blessed over the years. This is the Goldsmith program's 24th year by the Greenfield family's ongoing support. With the members of the Greenfield family and those from the Greenfield Foundation who are here tonight, please stand so that we can express our graduation, our, our congratulations. <laughs> Appreciation. I'm a <clears throat> you know, this is March, not May. Uh, I'd like to take a moment to single out one member of the family. Uh, Mike, could you raise your hand? Uh, for more than a decade, uh, Mike Greenfield has served as a Goldsmith Prize judge. It's a lot of work and Mike has done it year after year, and done it well. Thank you, Mike, you've been a good friend. We also owe an enduring thanks to the Shorenstein family, without whom there would be no Shorenstein Center. The center was funded by Walter Shorenstein, and in 2010, Walter's son, Doug, took the family lead, co-chairing our advisory board. This past November, we lost Doug to pancreatic cancer. I met with Doug in San Francisco last August and came away with a long list of ideas. Doug, like Walter, was more than a generous donor. He was wise counsel, and we miss his guidance. Now, the Goldsmith Awards don't have the searchlights or red carpet of the Oscars, and we've resisted pressure from the news industry to give our, name, our awards uh, a fancier name, something more Oscar-like, they keep pushing us to rename them the Goldies. <laughs> but this year, we beat the Oscars to the punch, and we did it by a mile. The Spotlight Team's expose of sexual abuse by Catholic priests won the 2003 Goldsmith Prize. All of us who love journalism are indebted to the Globe's Spotlight Team for showing, in this era of shrinking news budgets, why investigative reporting can't be allowed to waste away. A member of the Spotlight team is with us tonight, Mike Resendez. Mike was a Goldsmith judge last year, or this year. Mike, would you stand so that the rest of us can acknowledge what the Spotlight team has done on behalf of investigative journalism.
<clears throat> so now let's go to the prizes, starting with the books. Two Goldsmith Book Prizes are awarded each year, one for the best trade book in the field of press and politics, and one for the best academic book. The prize winners were chosen by a panel of judges consisting of Matt Baum, Marion Just, and myself. Each prize carries with it a $5,000 cash award. Now, conventional wisdom holds that Teddy Roosevelt, he of the bully pulpit, was the first truly media-savvy president. Sorry, Teddy, A beat you to it, as Harold Holzer's Lincoln and the Power of the Press reveals. As Lincoln traveled from town to town, he would stop at the offices of local editors. There, as Holzer writes, Lincoln would put his feet up on their desk, set them at ease with his droll stories, dazzle them with his local political knowledge, impart his ideas, and leave the premises, having converted a stranger into a new fast friend. Lincoln's unlikely but ultimately successful bid for the 1860 Republican presidential nomination was brokered by two of those newfound friends, the Chicago Tribs, Joseph Vidal, and the New York Tribune's Horace Greeley. But that feat was nothing compared to what Lincoln managed during the Civil War. We forget now just how divided the North was over the war. Democratic newspapers concocted lies to weaken Lincoln and undermine public support for the war. For their part, Republican newspapers alternated between attacking him for being too timid or too reckless. Even his skill as a wordsmith sometimes failed to sway the press. A Chicago reporter described Lincoln's Gettysburg Address as nothing but silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances. Yet through it all, Lincoln twisted enough arms and doled out enough patronage to get the headlines he needed to keep the public in line. Harold Holzer's book, as the New York Times said, is the classic account of Civil War era journalism and the president who both swayed it and came under its sway. Harold, please step up to accept the Goldsmith Trade Book Award for Lincoln and the Power of the Press. Smith Academic Book Prize this year goes to Political Journalism in Comparative Perspective, written by a quartet of European scholars, Eric Albach, Arjen Van Dalen, Neil Jabril, and Clay Debris. This book does what no previous book has done well. It systematically explores the interplay between news gathering, news content, and audience effects. That's an imposing task, which is why scholars have shied from it. We have some superb studies of news gathering, some superb studies of news content, and some superb studies of news impact. Now, we also have a superb book that covers all three. The author's four-country study, encompassing Denmark, Germany, Spain, and the UK, shows that a country's style of reporting has a major impact on how their citizens think about politics. Journalism can blunt political learning, but in some forms, it can enhance learning. Journalism can promote cynicism, 
but in some forms, it promotes efficacy. Journalism can undermine trust in politics and the press, but in some forms, it can build trust in both. Journalists, as well as scholars, should read this book. Much of what we assume to be intrinsic in news is the result of conscious choices that journalists make and that they could make differently. We're delighted that one of the book's authors has traveled from Europe to be with us tonight. Arjen Van Dalen, please step forward to accept the Goldsmith Academic Book Prize for Political Journalism in Comparative Perspective. Now, before introducing the six finalists for the Goldsmith Investigative Reporting Prize, I'd like to thank this year's judges. The judges had the laborious and difficult task of poring over and evaluating scores of entries. As I mentioned earlier, Mike Greenfield and Mike Resendez served as judges. Karen Desai, an investigative reporter from the San Jose Mercury News and a 2011 Goldsmith Award finalist, was also a judge as was Carol Marvin Miller, senior investigative reporter at the Miami Herald and part of the team that won the 2015 Goldsmith Award. Bill Mitchell, a former reporter, editor and bureau chief, who is now a Pointer Institute associate, was our fifth judge. Bill's a former Shorenstein Center fellow. The sixth and final judge was Deborah Adam Simmons, former editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer and now VP of the Plain Dealers Advanced Local. Deborah's a Neiman Fellow at Harvard this year. <clears throat> Deborah did her undergraduate work at Syracuse at a time I was on the faculty there. Deborah says she thinks she had me in class. <laughs> when former students tell you they think they might have been in your class, you've got an image problem. Uh, so. So it's now time to introduce each of the six finalists for the Goldsmith Investigative Reporting Prize. I'll introduce them in alphabetical order by news organization. The first Goldsmith finalist is the Associated Press's Seafood from Slaves. Forced labor was somewhat of an open secret in Thailand's fishing industry, but no one paid much attention to it until the AP team brought it to light. After several months of following dead-end leads, the reporting team heard about Benjina, a village on a remote Indonesian island. Upon arriving there, they discovered hundreds of enslaved Burmese, Cambodian, Thai, and Laotian fishermen. Some locked in cages, others no longer living, buried under fake names in the company cemetery. The AP team interviewed the captives and stayed the night in the forest with escaped slaves. Ordered the next day to leave, they were chased and nearly rammed by a company speedboat. The reporters then used satellite tracking to follow a shipment of seafood from Benjina to Thailand and then track the routes of the delivery trucks. Piecing together a list of companies wholesaling the cargo, they further tracked the seafood to unwitting U.S. firms, including Walmart, Target, Whole Foods, and Red Lobster. The AP's reporting led authorities to the island where they ultimately freed more than 2,000 fishermen, 
Some had been held in forced labor for 20 years or more. Since then, perpetrators have been jailed, ships seized, businesses shut down, congressional hearings held, legislation introduced. For its part, the State Department used the reporting to give Thailand the lowest rating for human trafficking. With the AP reporter with us tonight, please stand for the series Seafood for Slaves. Ferguson, Michael Brown, unarmed teenager, black, shot dead. The Ferguson story made headlines everywhere, but for the Guardian US, it raised the question, why was there no reliable data on police killings? The Guardian team began to build a database to fill in the blanks, a task complicated by department's resistance to providing the information. Eventually, their effort would record the details of all deaths, not just shootings, at the hands of police in 2015. The Guardian data shed new light on police killings. At least eight of them had been ruled suicides by medical examiners who had bent to pressure from police to hide the true cause of death. Forty-eight people had died after being shocked by tasers, often by officers untrained in their proper use. Responding to the Guardian's reporting and a similar effort by the Washington Post, the FBI committed to changing its data collection. Said FBI Director James Comey, it is unacceptable that the Washington Post and the Guardian newspaper are becoming the lead source of information about violent encounters between police and civilians. In the Senate, Barbara Boxer and Cory Booker introduced legislation requiring police departments to record the killings. And all of this was accomplished by two reporters and a researcher, each armed with a laptop and a telephone, but savvy enough to enlist social networks in the data collection. May I ask the representatives of the Guardian US to stand for their series, The Counted. Acting on a suggestion from Daniel Ellsberg, Inside Climate News decided to look into the role of energy companies in the global warming debate, an inquiry that gradually led them to focus on Exxon. A challenge faced by the reporting team was that many of those involved in Exxon's early activities were dead or in poor health. Others depended on Exxon for their pensions and health benefits and refused to talk. Eventually, the investigative team obtained their sources and also acquired internal Exxon documents. What they uncovered surprised even them. As they reported, the company's own research, starting as early as the 1970s, pointed in the direction of global warming. But that's not the message Exxon will later broadcast in its ad campaigns. The ads were aimed at manufacturing doubt about climate change as were the messages coming from several dozen organizations that Exxon was funneling money to. The reporter's revelations prompted New York's Attorney General to subpoena four decades of Exxon records to see if the company had committed fraud by misleading investors about the financial risk that global warming posed to fossil fuel companies. 
Six weeks ago, California's Attorney General followed suit. Members of Congress, including Senator Whitehouse and Representative Liu, have urged the Justice Department and the SEC to investigate Exxon. Secretary of State John Kerry said that Exxon stands potentially to lose billions of dollars in what I would imagine would be one of the largest class action lawsuits in history. Would representatives of Inside Climate News please stand? The devil is in the details, as the New York Times revealed in Beware the Fine Print, an investigation into the clauses buried deep in consumer and employee contracts. The clauses deprive Americans of their ability to sue in court and, to act, to protect and act to protect companies whose business practices are deceitful or illegal. The Times investigation was set in motion when Wall Street lobbyists worked feverishly to kill legislation that would have exempted service members from arbitration on claims like auto repossessions. That lobbying effort raised a question. Why was arbitration such a big deal? Well, as the Times investigation revealed, it's the name of the game. The arbitration process is loaded in favor of financial firms. To show how loaded it is, the Times team talked with dozens of plaintiffs, arbitrators and judges, as well as hundreds of attorneys. They also examined more than 1,700 federal court records and 25,000 arbitration lawsuits alleging wrongful death, elder abuse, personal injury, and predatory lending. What they found was that tens of millions of Americans routinely enter into small print contracts that require them to agree to arbitration in the case of a dispute and that bar them from entering into class action lawsuits. These clauses favor the companies, in part because they often get to pick the arbitrators. And most claimants drop their cases upon discovering their class action is off the table. They don't personally have the money to take on a rich corporation in court. The publication of Beware of the Fine Print prompted legislation to be introduced that would, for instance, prevent nursing homes from requiring arbitration in elderly residents' contracts. And Senators Lay, Franken, and Warren have asked President Obama to bar the awarding of government contracts to firms that require arbitration clauses of employees and customers. Would representatives of the New York Times please stand? It's been six decades since the Supreme Court in Brown v. Board of Education struck down separate and unequal public schools. That ruling somehow escaped the attention of officials in Florida's Pinellas County. The Tampa Bay Times became curious when official state rankings showed that five of the 15 worst performing Florida schools were clustered in that county's black neighborhoods. The Times team poured itself into an investigation that analyzed millions of data points and interviewed hundreds of black children and their family members, as well as many former teachers and administrators. What they discovered was appalling. 
School and district leaders had stood by, for example, while dozens of veteran teachers had fled the black schools. When the Times team published the first stories, they re received veiled threats. But they continued on, reporting, for instance, that officials had stripped funding from schools in black neighborhoods in order to maintain popular programs in the county's other schools. The Times reporting drew the attention of U.S. Education Section Secretary Duncan, who traveled to Pinellas County and blasted its school board for education malpractice. The Florida Department of Education opened a still ongoing investigation into the district's use of federal funds. Change is coming to Pinellas County. Pressured by business and government, the school district has begun putting money into the five schools, including turning three of them into magnet schools. The county has also established a bonus program to retain teachers and to hire teachers' aides. And the district has hired a new administrator who will focus exclusively on fixing the five schools. Would the representatives of the Tampa Bay Times please stand? The Guardian U.S. was not the only news organization spurred to action by the Ferguson killing. The Washington Post launched a monumental effort to tally every fatal shooting by on-duty police officers in 2015. The project faced one challenge after the next. The individuals killed had often gone unidentified in reports, and the circumstances were often withheld. Some police departments did not even identify the officers involved. The Post's researchers compiled a trove of data, including the race of all victims, whether they were armed, and whether they had threatened officers before they died. By year's end, the death toll compiled by the Post numbered nearly 1,000, more than twice as many as been, ever been recorded in a single year by the FBI. A dozen Post stories emerged from the data, some of which ran counter to conventional wisdom. For example, very few of those killed were unarmed black men, though unarmed black men were shot and killed at seven times the rate of unarmed whites. The dead were overwhelmingly white men with guns who had attacked or threatened people. And contrary to the public narrative, the Post found that many police officers had acted heroically during these fatal encounters. The Post stories highlighted the need for fundamental reform. A quarter of those killed were suicidal or had a history of mental illness. Roughly 5% of the officers who killed someone in 2015 had killed someone earlier, though police departments often tried to cover up that fact. Along with The Guardian's reporting, the Post's year-long accounting of fatal police shootings prompted the FBI to act. In December, an official informed the Post that the FBI was overhauling its recording system. Senator Boxer cited the Post when she introduced legislation to four states to report officer-involved shootings to the FBI. Said Boxer, too many members of the public and police are being killed, and we don't have reliable statistics to tra track these tragic incidents. Would the representatives of the Washington Post with us tonight please stand?
Now, before announcing the winner of the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting, I want to note the generosity of the Goldsmith Fund of the Greenfield Foundation. The winning finalist gets a prize of 25000 The other finalists each receive 10000 Would the finalists please stand once again so that we can express our appreciation and admiration for your investigative work. Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting for 2016 is, and yes, we have an envelope. <laughs> Seafood from Slaves by the APs, Margie Mason, Robin McDowell, Martha Mendoza, and Nestor Kazan. by the way, from the team of four. Now it's my distinct pleasure to introduce the recipient of this year's Goldsmith Career Award for Excellence in Journalism, Walter Isaacson. Walter Isaacson is president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, which he's led for more than a decade. If you're familiar with the outsized agenda that Walter has pursued at Aspen, there is today no better leadership development institute anywhere in the world. You might be wondering how he's also been able to write best-selling books. Einstein in 2007, Steve Jobs in 2011, a book, by the way, that broke the all-time international sales record for a biography, and most recently, The Innovators. The answer to Walter's productivity lies in a remark he made in a magazine interview. I don't watch TV. <laughs> if you give up TV, it's amazing how many hours there are between 7 p.m. and 1 a.m. in which you can write. Uh, Walter's on familiar ground here tonight. He was a Harvard undergrad, a member of the Harvard Lampoon at that. From Harvard, Walter went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar a member of the Rhodes interview panel that selected him was a then little-known young attorney and former Rhodes scholar named Bill Clinton. From Oxford, Walter worked his way back to his native New Orleans, taking a job on a local paper. How Walter got from there to Time magazine is a credit not to his sophistication, but to his ability to pretend that he's not. A Time editor was in New Orleans searching for promising journalists from the hinterland. Time had concluded that it had too many Harvard grads on its staff. <laughs> when the editor asked Walter where he'd gone to college, Harvard, Walter mumbled Harvard <laughs> in a way that made it sound like Auburn. Uh, he got the job. Gradually working his way to the top spot, becoming Time's editor in 1996, 
along the way, he and Evan Thomas wrote The Wise Men, a book on how Averill Harriman, Dean Acheson, and a few other privileged Ivy Leaguers shaped post-war U.S. foreign policy. In 1992, he published a solely authored book, Kissinger, a biography. That book so angered the former Secretary of State that he vowed never again to speak to Walter. Henry's not here tonight, uh, but Rick Stengel, Walter's good friend, is here. Uh, I asked Rick whether he had any Walter stories I could tell. He directed me to the year 1998. It was Time's 75th anniversary, and Walter had the idea of celebrating it by inviting the people who had been on Time's cover. The mystery was whether Henry would show up. He did, and a reporter asked him why. Well, said Kissinger, even the Hundred Years' War had to end. <laughs> so Walter left time in 2001 to become CNN's chair and CEO, overseeing its coverage of 9-11 and the Afghan and Iraq invasions. While there, he found time to write his biography of Ben Franklin, which became a New York Times bestseller and book of the month selection. Walter's come a long way from the boyhood streets of New, New Orleans, but the Big Easy has never been far from his mind. From 2005 to 2007, Walter was the vice chair of the Louisiana Recovery Authority, which oversaw the post-Katrina reconstruction. It's my honor to introduce Walter Isaacson, this year's recipient of the Goldsmith Career Award for Excellence in Journalism. Walter. I worry about that introduction. I want to thank everybody, but mainly I want to thank the, um, the nominees for this award because they reminded us once again why we're in this business, why we were in this business, and why places like the Schoenstein Center are so important. It was deeply, deeply inspiring. I thought that the Harvard Lampoon had trained me well for journalism in this day and age, but I realized there's still some serious journalism being done. Thank you all, and congratulations on that award. That's really great. Um, I will correct Rick's story slightly. Henry called, and uh, I, my assistant said, it's Dr. Kissinger on the phone, and he says, Will Walter. And I thought, this is either Dr. Kissinger or it's Graydon Carter, who does a really good Kissinger imitation, is playing a joke on me, and so I'm not going to fall for it. So I went, uh-huh. And uh, he said, even the 30 years war had to end at some point. And then he paused, he said, but you know my wife Nancy, she's very partial to the 100 years war. We will have to work on her coming to the party as well. So Henry, uh, as he once wrote in his senior dissertation here, knew that people like nations don't have permanent friends or permanent enemies, only permanent interests. And, uh, uh, but he was a truly interesting person uh, to write about. It's a little bit daunting to getting a career, you know, lifetime achievement award, especially for somebody who still remembers very vividly being part of the Institute of Politics and being here. Uh, people of my generation don't think we're going to grow up, and so when you get a lifetime achievement award before you've figured out what you want to be when you grow up, <laughs> you feel like something's out of whack here. I do want to talk, though, about 
the things I've seen in journalism and the intersection of technology uh, to that journalism, because that's one of the big things we're facing today. It's not, of course, a new topic. It goes back at least 500 years to when Gutenberg helps with the movable press type, and that helps wrest uh, control over the flow of information from the scriveners and scribes that worked for the church and other authorities and allowed people to have direct access to information. I'm writing about Leonardo da Vinci now, and uh, Leonardo was born in 1452, the exact same year that Gutenberg printed his first Bible. And so uh, Leonardo, who never went to a university, never went to college, never knew Latin, was able to teach himself everything from astronomy and anatomy to zoology simply by reading books. And that shows the power of why the Reformation and then the Renaissance all get to spring from the fact of a more uncontrolled and free flow of information and ideas. You know, Leonardo left 7, 000, more than 7,000, about 7,200 notebook pages of sketches and his thoughts and ideas. They're extraordinarily easy to access, all these notes on paper. Far easier than when I went to Steve Jobs and I was sitting at his house and we were trying to get the emails he had sent in the 1990s. And even with the tech people at Apple, they were not able to get uh, them in a readable form from the next computer. I do worry about what will happen to future generations when we're all trying to decipher CompuServe emails or WordPerfect documents. I know Paul Sagan, my friend, is here and worked on the Riptide project that was done at the Kennedy School, and it just showed uh, the problems we have with the digital age doesn't give us the real foundations and uh, information uh, that we need. I also feel that uh, paper, uh, I'm going to sound old-fashioned here, as I look at Leonardo's paper works in the Bibliothèque Ambrosiana and other places, I realize what a good technology paper actually is. It's really good at the storage and distribution and retrieval of information. It's got an incredible battery life. It doesn't have to have backwards compatible operating systems. It just works. In fact, I've often thought that if for 500 years we had been getting all of our information put to us on electronic screens, and some latter-day Gutenberg had come along and said, I can take that information, and I can put it on paper, and I can deliver it to your front porch, and you can take it on the bus or to the bathtub or the backyard. We'd say, wow, paper is a wonderful technology. Someday it's going to replace the Internet. <laughs> and so, but, uh, it, you know, it, uh, during the time of Franklin, the declining cost of printing was also a great technological leap. It led to the in some ways, the foundation of the United States, both by preventing the authoritarian control of the free flow of information and by allowing people up and down the coast to connect via networks. Uh, the committees of correspondence, in some ways, were the first Twitter feed, and they really did empower the revolution. Franklin, you know, did want to go here to Harvard. He was from Boston. He used to hang around in Harvard Yard. He was the 10th son of a Puritan migrant. And being the 10th son of a Puritan, he was going to be his father's tithe to the Lord. So his father had set aside that he was going to go to Harvard and train to be a minister. This is back, way back 
uh, when Harvard trained more ministers and hedge fund managers and knew how to do it. Uh, but Franklin wasn't exactly cut for the cloth. Um, at one point, his father was saying, um, wanted him to say grace, and they were salting away the provision. He said, why not so say grace over all these provisions we're storing, and we get it done with once and for all for the entire year. So uh, his father decided not to send him to Harvard. That would be a waste of money. And Franklin wrote a wonderful piece you should read, one of his Silence Do Good essays for his brother's newspaper, James Franklin's New England Current, about how Harvard only knew how to turn out dunces and blockheads who had been taught to enter a room genteelly, something they could have learned more cheaply at dancing school. Um, <laughs> he does run away, run away from here, runs away from his brother, goes to Philadelphia and started Penn. You'll figure there's some lesson in there somewhere. But he also started a newspaper uh, back then. The cost of barrier entry to start a publication was very low, just as it is now. You could have 11 newspapers in Philadelphia, and a 12th could come up. And as importantly, he started a network, because he franchised some newspapers up and down the coast with his apprentices as they uh, graduated. And he created the colonial postal system that would allow the transit of information up and down the coast. Uh, the important thing he did while doing that is he first made it a closed system. His content was favored, sort of like Time Warner Cable would try to do when I was there. Uh, but he decided that America would be stronger if there was open access to the networks and all newspapers, all writers, all publishers could equally have access to that network. So he set the standard for open networks, which I think has uh, been sort of the foundation of the digital revolution. That idea of open networks and free flow of information lasted for a couple of centuries. And then there was a small aberration during the period when I got to be in journalism, which was basically the 1930s to the 1980s, which is where there was a consolidation of power, a consolidation of gatekeepers uh, for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into, but I'm sure have been studied here. You ended up with a reduction in the number of metropolitan newspapers because of advertising and everything else. You ended up with a broadcast technology that allowed three, maybe four networks. You know, uh, you couldn't just start a network the way you could start a blog today or a newspaper in Franklin's time, and that allowed the consolidation and centralization of power, which was kind of cool for those of us at Time and CBS and Walter Cronkite could tell us that's the way it is, but it was somewhat uncool when it came to having diverse sources of information and being able to go around the media elite gatekeepers. That began to change probably 50 years ago when people like Paul Barron and others invented a technology called packet switching in which instead of having central hubs that controlled the flow of information, they uh, invented uh, a way in which there were nodes that would store and forward packets and every node in the network would have equal power to store and forward packets. And both the Pentagon, the Pentagon uh, with its ARPA project decided to fund a lot of research universities to figure out how to use this technology in order to create a digital network. Uh, the great research universities who had to do it did what great universities always do and research professors always do, which is they delegated the task to their graduate students 
And so there were 30 really cool graduate students who ended up creating the rules of the road for the ARPANET that becomes the internet. And one of them was um, Steve Crocker. And he was the youngest and sort of most reticent, so they made him in charge of taking the notes because they didn't want to have any figure of authority. Uh, they didn't want to have it be centralized. They wanted it to be totally a collaborative process. And he came up with a name for how they were going to create the internet instead of having rules or regulations. They would come up with some ideas and he would call them requests for comment and they'd be sent around so that everybody felt they, felt they could build it collaboratively. That was really cool that this RFC process, this request for comment process, ended up creating the internet. What's also interesting to me and it's pretty cool is it's still how we're creating the internet. I think we're up to number 7,900 and it's still a collaborative process where nobody has any particular top-down authority on how this is going to work. When I was at Time Magazine, uh, we ran a story in the 90s, I think some anniversary of the internet, and we said that the Pentagon did it this way so it would survive a Russian nuclear attack. Um, and because, you know, if you, uh, an attack takes out a central hub, you can ruin a whole network. But the internet, you take out a node, it routes around it, just like it routes around any sensor or anybody who tries to control the internet. And we said that they wanted the survivability, which is why they did it. Um, uh, we got a letter from Steve Crocker. Uh, I didn't know who Steve Crocker was then, but he said, no, no, that's not why we did it. We were graduate students, don't forget. You know, you remember that period. Why were we graduate students? We were avoiding the draft. So we weren't doing this to help the Pentagon. We were doing it so nobody would have centralized control over sources of information. And he said, um, you know, that we, time was kind of arrogant back then, I know, because I was there, and we did not print the letter. And we said, we have a better source than you. I had forgotten all about that until I was working on a book and met Steve Crocker. He said, you don't remember me, but I was the one who wrote this letter. I said, oh yeah, I remember that. So I called uh, Rick's uh, successor, I think Nancy Gibbs was then, and I said, yeah, go back to the files before you throw away all the archives of time. Go back to the files, I want to find out who that better source was. It's a guy named Steve Lukasich who um, ran ARPA. He was the guy writing the checks. And he said, yeah, we didn't tell the graduate students we were doing it for that reason. You know, they were graduate students. You know, they were draft dodgers. Uh, but we would, that's why we were doing it. Tell Crocker, he said, that he was on the bottom and I was on the top, so he didn't know what was happening. So I did. I met Crocker again at a coffee shop in Washington. And he stroked his chin and he said, um, you tell Lukasich that I was on the bottom and he was on the top, so he didn't know what was happening. <laughs> and that's the essence of this decentralized, uncontrolled system uh, that we created. Ever since then, networks have changed everything they touch, from you know, taxi cabs to journalism, and the gatekeeper keeps getting disintermediated. I know Nancy Gibbs talked here at this forum a few days ago about the disintermediation that is inherent in this peer-to-peer non-authoritarian switched digital networks that we have today. I saw how that affected world politics all the way through my period at Time Magazine. I was once um, in uh, covering um, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe in 1989. And I went to Bratislava, which was then part of Czechoslovakia, uh, because it was the stirrings there. 
And uh, they put me in the hotel where they put foreigners. And one of the people who worked in the hotel said, you know, the students like to come in here and watch uh, the music videos. And it's the only place where you could get cable t or satellite TV. And uh, they'd like to come in. I said, sure, you can have them use my room in the afternoon if they want to watch things. And I came back early that day to sort of see some of the students who were watching it. But they weren't watching MTV or Sky TV or the music. They were watching CNN and what was happening in the Gdansk shipyards. It became clear to me that the lack of control of information was always going to lead to the demise of authoritarian regimes, although in fits and starts, as we find out. The arc of history isn't bent gently. It's sometimes a tough bend. And I remember years later being in um, a town, Kashgar, in uh, sort of the western part of China, way across the Gobi Desert from Beijing. And we were part of a Time News tour. I went into a coffee shop. There were three kids on a computer. I asked what they were doing, and they said, uh, where, you know, they were on the internet. And I said, oh, cool. And I said, let me try something. I typed in time.com. And boom, it was blocked. So I typed in cnn.com. It was blocked. At which point, uh, one of them elbowed me aside, and, and boom, time came up, and CNN came up. I said, what did you do? He said, well, we know how to go through proxy servers in Hong Kong that the censors are clueless about. And you could just see, each step of the way, how this lack of an ability to control information was going to change our politics. I won't get into it, uh, but it also has a dark side. In fact, the breakdown of American politics today is partly, I think, due to the bitter and poisonous atmosphere that can come out of uh, this type of loss of information. But the good thing, especially with the advent of the web, was that anybody, anywhere, got to publish anything they wanted and had access to any information anybody else distributed or published. I think, though, that there were two original sins. This is where it gets to be the Puritan sermon, where you get the sins and the sinners in the hands of an angry God, as one of the sermons was uh, right up the street there. Uh, and the two sins, I think, that happened was, first, we allowed and even indulged anonymity. Now, I know anonymity allows people privacy. It allows them to say things they want, protects them from authority. But in the creation of the Internet, it could have been built differently, and at some point maybe it will be engineered differently, where you would know exactly where the packets were coming from, and they were secure packets, and they were verified IDs, and people had to take responsibility for their own words. But instead, the Internet, as it was created by the RFC process, basically allowed so that it is very, very difficult if you want to hide your identity on the internet for people to know who you are. Uh, there's a tale that Plato goes into in the Republic called the Ring of Gyges. And if you put on the ring, nobody knows what you've done. Nobody knows what you've said. Nobody knows it was you who did something. And he and Socrates argue about whether you could have a civil system and morality if people could put on the ring of gyges. Uh, they come to the conclusion, no, and I think we've shown that a little bit today. I was at lunch at the Signet with uh, Molly, um, I can't remember her last name, who was the managing editor of the Crimson uh, this year, and she said that the Crimson comment section, 
with its anonymity, is so frightening that she would never look at it. And she said she spent her year as managing editor trying to keep anonymous sources out of the stories, and yet the, anon the anonymous comments uh, dominate the comment section. We lost the notion of community that was existent in the early days of the internet, when services like The Well, started by Stuart Brand and uh, others, when you logged onto the well, the first thing you saw was you own your own words. In other words, you had to take responsibility for what you said. And thus, there was very good community. The community had wonderful discussions. You could use a pseudonym, but you had to be registered and people had to know. So I think indulging in anonymity, whether you look at some of our, the New York Times actually does it well now and tries to curate things, but if you look at most places where people speak anonymously in comments section. It is, uh, we have somebody running for president who is basically an embodiment of an internet comment section. <laughs> and you can see why that type of anonymity and that type of privacy needs to exist, but we also need an alternative where people want a place where they can trust the information, they know where it comes from. And in fact, uh, I think, it would be better for the internet as a whole so that I don't keep getting emails from people who tell me they're in Nigeria and lost their wallet and need money or whatever. If we had a systems on the internet where you could have verified ID if people want it, a voluntary place. The other original sin which Paul and John Huey and others, Dan Okrent, uh, when they did the study here at the Kennedy School, uh, is that we made it free when we put everything online. Uh, I remember it vividly, because I was involved with New Media and Time Inc. and Time Magazine, and when we first put our, went from the online services like AOL and decided to build websites, um, we were looking for ways to do what Henry Luce had taught us to do, which is have streams of revenue from advertisers, but also be dependent on your reader as well. So we looked for ways in which we were going to charge per copy, or we were going to have subscription models, but what happened was, as soon as we went online, you could just look out of the window of the Time Life building, and there were people from Madison Avenue, kids running with bags of cash to buy banner ads. And it was so seductive that you began to try to aggregate eyeballs. You made money from advertisers. It wasn't clear then that that was an unsustainable business model, that the amount of advertising would go up in a small way, and the number of websites would go up exponentially. So the amount you could charge would go down drastically. But it was worse than just being economically a problem. It meant that we were no longer directly beholden to our readers. If you look at each one of these things that are against the wall here, you say, okay, if that had to be there solely because advertisers wanted those eyeballs, would you actually have done it? And you would have gotten none of those stories. Henry Luce, when he was uh, the founder of Time Magazine in 1923, when he was asked about this notion, what he called controlled circ magazines, which meant you give it away for free and just support it by advertisers, he said eventually that not only is morally abhorrent, but it's economically self-defeating. As a Presbyterian missionary's son, I don't know which of those two things he thought was worse, but uh, it certainly has become both morally abhorrent and economically self-defeating, where we are not beholden 
as an industry, mainly to our readers, were now beholden to aggregating eyeballs for advertisers. So I think we now have to look at the difficult task of seeing if you could put these two genies back in a bottle. I think we need to offer uh, communities that are less anonymous and more curated. Obviously, they can be the Yik Yaks and the Reddits and people who want to go there, fine, but where people want to have a serious discussion about things, we have to uh, try to create good community and uh, crowdsourced information sites online that aren't uh, susceptible to trolling and anonymity and where people take responsibility for their own words. Um, as, as I say, the larger issue of having the internet have places where people are truly verified for everything, banking, whatever. But for me, civic discourse and the comment is the place we have to begin. We also have to create a vibrant business model for journalism. You know, I think journalism is healthy these days, really healthy. We see it here, but we also see it every morning when we go on whatever it may be, you know, Vox and the Jerusalem Post and the New Orleans Advocate and certain blogs and things I really love. You know, it's like my Twitter feed is always pointing out different things. It is really great to be able to get all of this information. So journalism isn't broken. What's broken is the business model for journalism. And like most things that are broken, it stems from the original sin, this notion of trying to create things where you're not beholden uh, to your reader. So I do think we need to find more than just the subscription models, which some newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, I subscribe to. That's a good line of revenue. But it is not easy for everybody to do that. There are times when I want an article from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I don't want to subscribe. But I'm certainly willing to pay a dime or a dollar even for a copy of that day's issue. We need to have easy small payment systems. We need to have metered passes. We need to have ASCAP royalty models like the music industry does. We need to have Bitcoin and Bitcoin small payment systems. And I think it's important for news organizations as they do this to have the direct relationship with the reader instead of doing it through Google or Amazon or Apple where Apple has the credit card and the direct relationship with the user because whoever controls the currency and whoever controls the credit card information will control the customer and will reduce the content providers to being mere commodities. So I would really hope that there's some way we could figure out in the trade of journalism, how are we going to fix the business model ourselves? I can think of no better place and no more necessary time to do all of this than here and now at the Shorenstein Center. The Shorenstein Center, I think, could work with the Berkman Center to create a hybrid models that combine journalism with crowdsourced information, with communities engaged in serious discussion. They could create places where people could go voluntarily, where identities are verified, figure out ways that news organizations can create real community around their journalism. In other words, create places that resemble the real world, like this room, like the JFK Forum, where people can come, they can discuss, they can say what they want, but they have to take responsibility uh, for what they say. In addition, I think the Shorenstein Center could work with um, 
the Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Science and the Business School uh, on a project, I mean sort of a crash project, to find the technologies and the strategies that would enable journalism uh, to be supported by users and not just by advertisers. You know, for 500 years, technology has increased the spread of ideas and the empowerment of individuals. This has, as I hope I've described, bent the arc of history towards freedom, individual empowerment, and democracy. I'm convinced that this will also be true for the next 500 years. But it'll be up to places like the Shorenstein Center to help us navigate through the current shoals and rectify some of the mistakes that the people in our generation made. Thank you all very much. This is a fast train. <laughs> so we're going to take uh, questions. We have uh, microphones set up. Uh, if you would, in asking a question, please identify yourself. Uh, so let me start you off with a question while others are. Um, Nezra, are you up there oh. in the question queue? Okay. Oh, please. Yeah. Hi. Uh, my name is Silvano. I'm a student at the college. And so I think you talking about business models in journalism today, especially coming with the internet, um, is very interesting because it seems to me that there are a lot of publications, lots of people writing their own personal stories. Um, and when you talk about, sorry, when you talk about communities and creating communities online, I think that's something that's very important. But my question is, when you look at trying to do that for so many publications, right? If each of these publications has their own community, if you try to get people to pay for content on different mm -hmm. sites, it seems like that's something that might be very difficult to do and to, to, to get people to pay every single time they go somewhere, right? It seems like people are used to having free content and they've always been used this to it. This is why it's content. a genie that's hard to put back in a bottle is that we allowed people to be used to free content. Right. But I disagree with your premise that it would be hard to do it for a thousand, harder for a thousand places than to do it for a handful of places. I do think that if you found an easy pass, you know, like you take your car, you can drive to any toll booth, if you found an easy way on your browser that you had te you know, dimes and quarters and 50 cent pieces and you were traveling through the internet, it would work with some project you did, you know, some poem or play or uh, blog or publication. If people create a song, they create a play, if they create a journal, whatever it may be, those, it would enable, just as, to go back, I guess I'm getting into the 500 year ago mode, but when they do get the printing press, they figure out the statute of Anne, which says in England that if somebody makes a copy of what you do, you get a right to a bit of royalty, so you get what we call copyright. That opened up a whole economy of people writing plays and novels. I mean, you wouldn't have had novels. So I think if you had small payment systems, done by a Bitcoin or whatever, where you have 25 bucks of Bitcoin in your browser and you decide, okay, I like that poem somebody is writing, uh, I'm willing to pay a dime for it or 50 cents for it. It would actually empower the small creator of content 
more than the media companies. Right, the, the smiling curve, right? You get big publications yeah. that can sustain their advertising systems, and you get small publications where people are willing to pay for it. Correct. But I guess my question, so you're saying that we, we, you don't pay up front, you read something, and then you decide, okay, this is yeah, worth I mean, X I to I me? think that is why I want you all to invent the business model. Okay. But I would <laughs> say that, you know, I go online, I see the first paragraph of something in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch or the New Orleans Advocate or Wall Street Journal, and I want it, and it basically says, if you click, you know, we will debit in five cents from your online account, and you decide then to click or not would be one way to do it. Or you could just do it where people click away like crazy, but they know that it accrues just like your easy pass when you drive through toll booth accrues things. And, you know, some people will say, I'm going to give you half of it for free and see how much you'll pay. Some people just say, read it, and if you like it, leave me a tip. I don't care what the business model is, but we need the technology and the dedication to saying, I'm going to try to get the user to value this, as opposed to saying, I'm going to do it and hope that Google will put an ad sales service on it. Mm. Thank you. Mr. Isaacson, Professor Patterson. My name is Lippy Roy. Uh, I'm a physician at Mass General and at Harvard Medical School, but my day job is uh, being a doctor to Boston's homeless population. But my question traces back to your hometown. So in 2005, I was a second year medical student at Tulane, evacuated to her, um, Houston, um, and after nine months, came back to a very different New Orleans, mm -hmm. um, took care of uh, residents, mostly from the Ninth Ward, in a grassroots clinic started by my classmates at Tulane. So fast forward, I'm now in this well-to-do city, Boston, where I care for Boston's most vulnerable men and women. So my question relates to, given your extensive and diverse experience in government and, and media and publishing, do you have a, a keen kind of strategy or, or in terms of how to really address, obviously my interests are health disparities, but just whether it be ethnic, racial disparities, because yep. it really reflects in terms of the diseases that they get and the kind of care that they get in hospitals and whatnot. The greatest moral, political, and economic issue of our day and generation is unequal economic opportunities and unequal uh, access yeah. to education, healthcare, whatever it would be. And uh, I think obviously it's good to be in a place like this where we realize that politics and policy are part and parcel of how you could possibly solve it. I know what you did. I was on the board of Tulane and I was blown away by the fact that people came back to Tulane by January, by Martin Luther King's day, right after Storm, the electricity wasn't in in all places. Absolutely. And they started new schools, they started neighborhood clinics, the people at Tulane. They took Ruth's Chris's Steakhouse, which used to give people heart attacks, and you turned it into <laughs> a uh, neighborhood clinic. Uh, and it shows what we can do when we try to do things. I mean, if it comes to health, it seems to me every university should be in charge of making sure that there are health clinics in every neighborhood right. you know, that they serve, I mean, or in their area. Yeah. Um, but we need, it, it's not that difficult to put those health centers in every neighborhood, including mental health centers, yeah. or to start a new school system. Yeah. But, and I don't recommend having a hurricane as a way to have to do it, but you do need the dedication to do it. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, my name is Ben Bolger, and I'm a Harvard alum. Uh, you've written about many innovators, Benjamin Franklin, Steve Jobs, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a lot of efforts to reform the curriculum in universities to focus on liberal arts and critical thinking. What insights do you have about how creative thinking can be taught or fostered 
in higher education? Yeah, uh, I thought you were going to ask, which everybody does, you know, don't we need more STEM education? And then you get into the, well, no, actually, critical thinking, the liberal arts. I think the first 50 years of the digital revolution was dominated by engineering and coming up with things. And in the past 10 years and in the future, you're going to see it's a connection of creativity, whether it's all of the creative, whether it's a fashion industry or interactive plays, but also, you know, someday people are going to invent journalism that uh, really makes use of the technology or books in which you can embed Steve Jobs' voice and everything into the book. So the connection of technology to creativity is this next wave. Uh, I don't, I mean, one of the, we really have a messed up education system in America, especially K through 12, which say 30 years ago was the best in the world by every metric and is now number 25 or 26. The small, the, not small, the big upside though is that it is nurturing creativity, critical thinking more than places where you really learn the multiplication table and the periodic chart better. Uh, and it comes from an ability to question authority, to search around and talk back. So I'm not quite as worried about, quote, teaching critical thinking. I think you just have to encourage people. Every person I've written about, and this is why I don't usually get asked to talk at universities, dropped out and ran away. You know, Steve Jobs, even Albert Einstein, Ben Franklin, as I said. You know, uh, so that ability to be a bit of a rebel, to question authority, is to me a key to creativity. It's actually why I'm writing about Leonardo, because he, when I was like trying to figure out these things, who is the ultimate person who connected the arts and the sciences, who dropped out, was a rebel, uh, did his own creative thinking. And what's the ultimate symbol of that? You know, it's Vitruvian man in the circle in the square, the uh, Leonardo drawing. So that's what I wanted to get at is say, okay, how's that formula work? Uh, I'm hey, Aditya, I'm a junior, again. we met this afternoon. Yeah, that's right, good to see um, you again. So I had two lunch. questions. Um, so first and of you all, are working for the New York Times. I am, yeah. And I mean, you will as an intern. Yeah. And uh, so you're gonna figure this out for yeah. us. And last <laughs> year you worked as an at intern? At Time. Time Magazine. I did, yeah. It still exists? I'm sorry? Yeah, I would do that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, do you know Rick? <laughs> yes, I do, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um, I think in an age where the sources of journalism have like exploded and become so democratized. Like, how do you think we can pr uh, build brand loyalty? Uh, like, do you think we're moving towards an age of like the brand of the individual journalist as opposed to like brands of like media outlets? Um, and second of all, I think like as more and more information is being sort of consumed on the go and like smartphones, what do you think that implies for the future of like long farm journalism? Yeah. Um I do think there's an inherently disintermediating uh, tendency to the technology, meaning you don't need to buy the bundle. You can, you know, buy David Brooks without buying the New York Times, whatever it may be, in theory. Uh, I, however, perhaps incorrectly, think that people who do put together a good package and who have a brand and reputation you can trust will provide a real value. I go to Vox, I go to Huffington Post, whatever, but I also mainly start with the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, not just because I'm old fashioned, but because I kind of know what their standards are and what they're coming from. 
Uh, the problem for that type of journalism, without getting back onto my uh, hobby horse here, is that that form of journalism is not as easily incented in an era of BuzzFeed aggregating eyeballs for advertisers. It is more incented if people said, wow, I've got to figure out what so-and-so said, uh, uh, and even if I'm not going to subscribe to the Financial Times, if Larry Summers from this building typed a piece today on uh, secular stagnation and Donald Trump, even if I'm not going to be an FT subscriber, which I'm not, and I wanted to read that article, but I didn't because I wasn't going to go through the rigmarole. You know, if I could have just said, yeah, you know, take a buck out of my, or a quarter out of my account, I would do it. That would incent the type of good journalism. The question is, it would be interesting for the business model. Suppose uh, David Brooks is getting 20 times as much as Tom Friedman, you know, do companies start paying that way? But I do think companies and what I'll call industrial organizations, which means, you know, Time Inc. or whatever, that pay people, pay them salaries, send them off to uh, Iraq, you know, that sort of thing. They build a brand loyalty and people at their peril decide I'm going to go on my own instead of work within an organization. I'm Melissa. Um, I'm at the business school. Um, and so you drew a parallel with the music industry. And one thing I think the music industry has done very well is to encourage people to choose to pay for music because the paid experience, say, for Spotify is so much better than mm. the unpaid experience. Right. So do you think that that can be replicated? And if so, how yeah. in news? Okay, I, I actually write a chapter on this in the Steve Jobs book because Steve Jobs said, man, the music industry is so brain dead because they were getting Napsterized in particular, but all the peer-to-peer -peer sharing. People were getting music for free. And he said, why are they getting music for free? Not because people like to steal music or whatever, but because the music industry has made it so damn hard to just get a song like that for very cheap, whatever. And so he convinced the people at Apple, well, he didn't have to convince the people at Apple, he just told the people at Apple, but even started browbeating like our friends Andy Lack and others who ran the music companies, saying, look, if they can just get any song they want for one click for 99 cents, people will prefer doing that than doing a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing where they have no idea what's really going to happen when they download something from Napster or Nutella or wherever they were getting it. And he turned out to be right. Why? Because it was unbelievably simple. You didn't have to, I mean, I bought something today just walking over on my phone. I had to get my PayPal account. I had to pay, you know, this is ridiculous. I was buying something for $1.25. It should have taken that money. So the first lesson of Steve's Jobs is keep it simple. And he did that with the music side. I do think that the publishing of books industry kind of got it right, meaning Kindle and ebooks and Apple, it's easy and pretty simple. I think they're making a mistake now. I mean, I'm happy to people to pay 17 bucks for an ebook edition of my book, but that's wacky. We should be charging four bucks for that so that people don't think, can I break the system and get it for free? Uh, and that gets back to my feeling on journalism or plays or, or music or blogs you may do which is if you just have a simple system where in the browser or in whatever account you have, digital wallet you have, 
you can just, without doing anything, just say, yeah, yeah, a quarter, fine. Uh, then people would do that rather than try to find a way around paywalls. Hi, thank you for taking the time. While phrasing my question, I was literally reviving the moments where I was reading your Steve Jobs, Einstein, and Kissinger, and uh, I could literally Even see- Even I haven't read them all, but that's uh, nice of you, yes. Uh, 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 very impactful. My question is really simple. What's your creative writing process? How do you approach writing? Well, um, first of all, I do like to try on the nights where I can to write five or six hours and stay up late. And I don't believe any good ideas ever happen before 10 in the morning. So, you know, I, I, it's not like I try to be, you know. But what I... It's a major difference when you're doing Leonardo than when you're doing Steve Jobs. Because Steve Jobs, it was two years of just being in his guest house and taking walks with him every day and doing it. Whereas with Leonardo, my process is forget what anybody else has ever wrote or thought about him. Let's go through all 7,000 pages of the notebooks page by page and figure out how he got from here to there. Um, and then it's pretty simple. I've, um, we have the same editor, right? I said I would say hello to Alice, and then he gave me a look, and like, my wife's not named Alice. I, say, I don't know my wife's name, but I know my editor's name, and it's Alice. So when I was doing The Wise Man with Evan, coming out of college here, um, she wrote in, the, and it was six friends, as you mentioned, you know, the, the Lovett, Harriman, Atchison crowd. And you try to keep it all together, and she wrote a tigta in the margin over and over again. And that meant all things in good time. Keep it chronological. Because, and you look at, you know, your two Lincoln books, really, that's the way humans form narrative, is they keep it chronological. It is so wonderful. I hope this doesn't get spread around too much, because at academic institutions like this, academic historians think that narrative, especially biographical narrative, is somehow beneath their dignity, that they have to write books on Einstein that aren't chronological, that kind of jump around based on themes. That's not how Einstein lived his life, despite the fact that he thought all time was relative. And that's not the way you're going to understand things. So I mean, my process, what I'm doing with Leonardo now, I have, it's, I, it's a document I just looked at. It's about 800,000 words of notes. And it's all chronological. I mean, you know, I'm up there now in 1482 when he leaves Florence to go to Milan. And if something happened before that date, it's higher in the outline. So, so uh, Walter, uh, hey, how are Kevin you? Close, nice uh, yeah, to please, see you. Bye. Uh, I happen to be a member of the advisory board, so I, I asked. I thought you just okay, came. Well, I didn't okay, see you. So. Kevin, as everybody knows, uh, ran NPR, right? And, yes. And, yes. Probably did other things. So I wanted to ask you, uh, Walter, since we're here among friends and, and we're curious about what you think is coming in the future, I've been fascinated by the, obviously, by the purchase of Je by Jeff Bezos of the mm -hmm. Washington Post. And the question um, one must ask themselves is, um, he's a person who spent many years not making a profit on, on what he was doing to build Amazon. Um, is it possible that there's a, in his thinking going forward, that, that Amazon as part of its, just thinking about how it's going to connect to the Washington Post. I think that in some of his conversations in the newsroom, 
in the few visits he's made, he's, uh, people have gotten the idea there that he, one of the things he's interested in might be in the range of 100 million circulation. Mm -hmm. So that means... Well, he's interested in moonshots, as you know, including sending a rocket to the so moon. If you would just and why can't I make the Washington Post 100 million? Sir? Yes, exactly. And Dilate like, on, that, uh, on that. I don't theme. know, but that took... Um, the, that row there is Washington Post people, and I think you know one of the things he's doing is keeping quality, which helps. I'm actually going out. He does something in Palm Springs or Palm Desert the week after next, and it's on moonshots and robots, artificial intelligence, and now journalism. And I've never really, you know, I, for me, going to a conference is like a busman's holiday. I have thrown enough conferences. But this time I'm actually going to go out there because I'm trying to figure out, well, what, how does his mind work? Is it, I, I do think one good business model for journalism, which is not probably one we should advertise too wide and far, is the benevolent rich person who uh, is willing to squander money. Uh, <laughs> and that works whether it's the Grams or to some extent Salzburgers, and it works with Bezos, and it doesn't work with, to pick one alumni of this college, Chris Hughes. Uh, so it doesn't always work, but uh, I don't get, I'm sorry, I just don't know what is Jeff thinking, and I think I'm going out there mainly to just try to figure out what's driving this guy. Okay, one last question. You've been very patient, please. Mm -hmm. well, thank you. My, my name's Mike, and I'm a resident of Boston. I saw you on cool. Twitter this morning that you'd be here. I said, well, let's take a ride over to Harvard for something <laughs> different. Welcome. And the, uh, the, the reason I'm here is, um, it was on the Steve Jobs book that everyone's kind of bringing up. And it reminded me of a, um, of a review of the book by Harold Meyerson. He was a, uh, he was a journalist. I remember with Washington Post. I'm yeah, really not I, sure. Yeah, I think so, yeah. But I don't think he's there anymore. If you go to YouTube and you go to Harold Meyerson, Steve Jobs' book, oh. you know, he goes into the review. Oh. And, his re and his review is he, he thinks the book is great. It gets into great detail. But he kind of holds you up in ridicule to a point where you speak about Steve Jobs and the development of Apple but you completely ignore the effort that was made in his development of his supply chain, chain excuse me, with, uh, over in China. Yeah. About, it, was, it was, I'm sure you've heard it before, <clears throat> but it's also been reinforced by friends of mine like Ralph Garmery, who was the president of the Alpha P. Sloan Foundation, Mr. Innovation for IBM for, yeah, sure. for many, many years, as well as um, Clay Christensen, who's also concerned about the state of Apple now. We're Especially on the China and the supply chain. China manufacturing, chain. so I just kinda. Yeah, uh, this is a very that. valid criticism and I don't go much into China in the book. And the reason I don't, and this is not an excuse, is that Steve paid absolutely no attention to it, never in his life went to China, never, they couldn't get him to go there or anything else. And so when you're writing a biography, <laughs> you can, and perhaps should, and perhaps I should have said, okay, here's things he had no interest in and didn't do, and it was really bad and he should have, but I'm actually just writing a narrative of the guy's life, and I mentioned the fact that all these things were happening and he didn't really give a damn. Um, I think that the larger criticism of the book, which um, I thought you were gonna go to, and I will use this as an I didn't. I didn't read the book, I'm oh, sorry. Okay, well, <laughs> Uh, Harold Meyerson, if I remember him correctly, is a very smart person. He's a, he's and whatever a, trouble, he's a troublemaker. Good. But there was another one, which is that it makes biography, we biographers, I don't speak for Harold, but I'll speak for myself, have a dirty little secret, which is we distort history a bit 
by making it seem like some guy or gal goes into a garage or a garret and they have a light bulb moment and innovation happens. When in fact, there's whole teams. There are teams doing supply chains, there's, Tim Co you know, there's designers and everything else. And writing, as we did, Evan Thomas and I, that Joe knows the book well, um, about a collaborative team, like the people who created the Cold War foreign policy of the United States, is a little bit harder than the biography, which then by necessity focuses on what did the guy do as opposed to what should he have done but he didn't do. And so I wrote a book, not nearly as successful, called The Innovators, which was to go back to the wise man model, which was how the formation of teams and uh, not just follow the ball of one individual but try to find the notion of collaboration and the values you put into that collaborative system, which is what the criticism of Steve was when it came to China thing, uh, that I tried to play with more. And so in that book, I do not only do the whole rest of the Apple team, but I do some of the parts of the DNA of Apple that were probably not as cool. The, the, the one thing that uh, I noticed which is very... <laughs> Is it a quick question? It is. <laughs> I'm not gonna, you know, it's, it's just that you, today you see Bernie Sanders yeah. and um, our friend Mr. Trump both getting traction, holding up Apple as the way not to do it as far as manufacturing goes. So it's kind of yeah. bo both extremes. Yeah, I, um, I think that Tim Cook has a certain set of values that are different from Steve's and he's gonna uh, at one point they were talking, and I have this in the book actually, they were talking about the problems in the supply chain in China, and Steve wasn't doing anything about it, and Tim got upset and said to the person, what do we know about this, what are we going to do, and the person who was, said, we're going to have to do this and this, and about an hour later the meeting was still going on, and Tim looked at the person and said, why are you still here? And the guy got up, drove to the San Francisco airport without packing, and went straight to China. So uh, corporations do have moral responsibilities, and a Steve Jobs book is not a how-to book. It's not how to live your life or even how to run your company. It is, for both better and worse, just a biography about a real person, his strengths and weaknesses, and how those will manifest in what I think were the greatest changes in everything from the music industry to the phone industry to the publishing industry, to the tablets, to personal computing, and for that matter, retail stores and movies. Thank, Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we have to give you the award. <laughs>